Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Andrew Shane. The, I'm the Chief Technology Officer and Enterprise Architect at NASA Headquarters and currently have the program lead for information and data management at NASA. And, uh, Peter, I want to thank you and everybody else for the opportunity of uh, joining you once again. And this time, we're going to go through some uh, pretty interesting exemplars of what NASA has been doing in the semantic space from a cross-section of folks uh, that will each share some of their work. And uh, as, we'll just sort of keep it in the same order as uh, was posted on the website, if that's okay. And I'm just going to sort of introduce each one of them briefly in the order of their appearance. Uh, first, uh, we're lucky to have Rich Keller with us. He's a computer scientist. Uh, at Ames Research Center in the Intelligence Systems Division. He is currently the technical lead for Information Sharing and Integration Group, which conducts a variety of semantic technology projects focused on NASA science, aeronautics, and exploration activities. Um, Rich is, has been in and around data systems and these technologies for a while and, and brings quite a bit to the, to the table. Uh, we'd like to have Rob Raskin with us today, too. Rob is the group supervisor for the Science Data and Engineering Group at, at JPL's Science Data Systems section. Uh, Rob and I met uh, serendipitously uh, about three or four years ago when I was doing, away doing research because he is the developer of Tweet Ontology and uh, for those of you uh, that have a separate web browser open, sometime now or in the future, go to uh, Sweet JPL and look at the great modeling stuff that uh, Rob has put together and really been in the forefront of ontological representations of models for NASA for quite some time. Uh, we're equally fortunate to have Ralph Hodgson with us. Ralph's uh, the uh, contract lead for uh, the development of ontologies in the Constellation Program Data Architecture and what I'll, I'll call the Nexium ontologies. He's uh, the co-founder and CTO of Top Quadrant, and a lot of people on this call probably know who that is, and um, the kind of work that they do in semantic technology, consulting, training, the development and sales of tools, and so on. But uh, the relevant piece here is that Ralph has been doing some work uh, for the Constellation Program and for Nexium out at Ames. And when it comes to his turn, he'll tell us all about that work. And uh, Peter, unless I've left something out, I think I would just as soon turn it over to the good stuff and ask uh, Rich to start with his presentation of his slides. Yep. Okay, Rich, take it away. Okay. Thanks very much, Andy. I really appreciate the invitation to come and uh, talk virtually to everyone on the panel. Um, so I'm going to be talking with you today about uh, some work that we did uh, actually uh, a number of years back on a, a, a tool called uh, Science Organizer, which is a semantics-based repository for distributed uh, scientific teams. And I want to just uh, start by acknowledging our um, our funders, which is always good to do. Uh, the NASA Astrobiology Institute provided funding for this work uh, in association with uh, a number of different NASA research and development 
uh, programs uh, that have undergone changes and have different names now, but I want to thank them for the, the support. Next slide, please. I also want to uh, start by uh, saying that this, this work actually uh, has been ongoing for a number uh, of years, and uh, we have a, a large uh, list of contributors, and um, these are the people who um, made this all happen. Uh, we have a core team of, of folks, uh, a number of former teammates, and uh, some key science collaborators uh, which who were uh, most important. Um, next slide, please. So what uh, Science Organizer addresses is the really important problem for NASA of capturing the scientific record in distributed teams. So um, it's really important when conducting scientific work to uh, have a, a thorough understanding of the data that's coming in, the hypotheses that are being pursued, and uh, the communication among the team. And that's uh, particularly difficult to do when you have a distributed team of investigators and scientists. And um, it, it's really critical that we capture uh, the scientific record for, uh, for conducting the research, for replicating results, and also for conducting follow-on research when uh, subsequent teams want to understand the scientific work that's been done. So I've, I've listed here some of the barriers to uh, accurate capture of, of the scientific record in distributed teams. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, data, documents, notes, findings that are being generated during the course of a scientific investigation. And there's a wide variety of different data sources that come into play. Uh, heterogeneous information format, and of course the distributed science team is located in different places. That's what it means to be distributed, and they have different uh, ways of storing the data, uh, different data systems. Um, in some smaller groups, there are just individual uh, scientists who are storing uh, data on their desktops. And at NASA, we have, of course, a variety of different uh, uh, ongoing scientific work. Uh, some examples are like the Mars Exploration Rover Team uh, that's been working for quite a number of years now on the Mars Exploration Rover Project, uh, the Astrobiology uh, Science Teams. Um, uh, we have Planetary Science Teams, Life Science Teams. So there's a whole uh, host of different scientific teams uh, working uh and uh, we need to really capture their uh, uh, scientific record. Um, it uh, is a particularly a problem because these different teams uh, don't have really standards for uh, data collection or data curation. Uh, there's a lack of metadata that they uh, collect. Uh, in fact, m most often uh, the science teams are just interested in collecting the data, and they really don't. Uh, have the time and patience for collecting a lot of metadata. Um, there are different sets of terminology that are typically used by different uh, collaborating uh, sub-teams within a distributed science team. 
And it's, it's overall very difficult to see the connections between the data and information that are gathered by the different uh, people on the team. So what do they do now uh, in order to coordinate and communicate? Well, they do what you would, you'd imagine. They, they, they use email to exchange data sets uh, and information. They sometimes use FTP sites. And maybe if they're really advanced, they would use some sort of a content management system like DocuShare. Um, but that's, that's actually pretty rare. Next slide, please. So we're on slide uh, four now. So the, uh, the approach that we took was a semantics technology approach and involved three basic components. Uh, the first component was to, first of all, centralize all of the information for the distributed team so that it was in a common repository that the entire team could get at. So it wasn't on individual scientists' desktops only. Uh, that's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, the second uh, component to the solution was to standardize uh, for each distributed project team uh, a set of common uh, vocabulary, a, a common information model or ontology for expressing and interrelating the various uh, information that's being collected. And I should point out here that the, the, the focus typically, as I've mentioned, is on collecting the data. The scientists are very interested on the data. Well, the data is not enough. We want to, uh, to capture contextual information that makes it uh, easy to access the data and to retrieve the data and to understand what's been collected. So the third, uh, the third uh, step here is to contextualize the information by annotating it with semantic context. And what we did was to develop this system called Science Organizer, which is a semantically structured repository for uh, scientific information. Uh, next slide, please. So we're now on slide five. So Science Organizer is a um, web-based collaborative tool for knowledge management. It facilitates information sharing. So Science Organizer serves as a kind of project information repository or, or digital library where the, the members of the scientific team can upload or download uh, various information products associated with the investigation. And these include, uh, you know, images and data sets and documents and things that you would Im normally imagine go into a, a, a content management system. But they also include various types of uh, scientific records, which uh, are intended to capture sort of conceptual objects that um, are relevant to the team's work, like descriptions of field sites and descriptions of instruments and measurements, and of course people, uh, the people who are members of the team. Um, so. All of this information is intended, again, to provide some contextualization on top of the data. Uh, organizer features uh, cross-linkage among information, um, and it supports inference capabilities because it's ontology-based, and it allows formal reasoning about the contents of the scientific repository. So overall, it functions as a kind of institutional memory or a project archive that 
uh, enables the uh, team's history to be uh, recovered, uh, the history of their lab work and their field work and their other activities. Next slide, please. So we've seen a whole host of different types of um, activities supported uh, using Science Organizer. And uh, we've seen people collecting scientific field data, performing laboratory experiments, actually, using some specialized software that we developed that, uh, that connects to remote instrumentation. Uh, we've seen people archive samples and images, track scientific hypotheses, write scientific papers and proposals, and conduct education and outreach. So there are a wide variety of activities that can be facilitated with the, the software. Um, next slide, please. We're moving to slide seven. So I want to introdu introduce you to the details of Science Organizer um, by grounding things a little bit in terms of a um, discussion of a scientific team that we work closely with in developing the system. This is the Early uh, Microbial Ecosystems Research Group. Now, these are a bunch of astrobiologists, um, astrobiologists being people who study the origins of life uh, in the universe and on Earth in particular. Uh, they are biologists and chemists and geologists and uh, geneticists. And this particular team studies uh, algae mats. Uh, so they, they study these, these samples you see in the, uh, on the left side here. You see them uh, in Baja, California, actually. They, they, they travel to different sites around the globe where there are extreme environments. And in Baja, there's extreme saline environment. And... Um, these uh, microbial mats, they kind of look like lasagna. You see the one there that's labeled 4B. Uh, and they uh, are representative of a very early Earth ecosystem, and one of the uh, few early Earth ecosystems to have survived even till today. Um, and they're very interested in how this may help them understand uh, how life, how, how life uh, came about on on Earth, and uh, the distributed uh, team is from uh, research institutions around the United States. Uh, they have collaborators in Mexico and in Spain, and typically on a field trip, they all um, converge together. They do their um, data collection, their sample collection, and then they disperse. They go back to their home institutions, and um, they analyze the data. You see in the picture a greenhouse uh, facility, which is here at Ames Research Center, uh, where the microbial mats are sort of incubated and they're poked and prodded and uh, a variety of data is collected. But this data collection is going on simultaneously at the different uh, sites uh, within the distributed team. So therein lies the problem. How do you track all this data? And And the whole idea, of course, is to be uh, understanding what's happening with the science and piecing together all of the pieces of evidence to to understand better. Next uh, slide. So we're on slide eight coming up now. So um, 
what what we know is that, for example, um, this mat, this sample uh, algae mat, which was labeled 4B on the previous slide, is a piece of evidence, right, in, in a scientific investigation. And we really want to capture all the contextual information about uh, 4B uh, for use in subsequent uh, activities, like for use in conducting analyses and generating hypotheses and writing papers and uh, doing follow-on investigations. Um, just having the data is really not enough to do a, do a appropriate analysis. And again, um, a lot of the contextual information would typically be in the scientist's head, and they're a distributed uh, team of scientists. So next slide, please. So in, in this slide, we are, which is number nine, um, I'm trying to describe something about the context of information surrounding MAT4B, which is at the center of the diagram. This is a semantic network diagram where uh, what we understand from the diagram is what the scientists really relay to me about that particular sample, that it's collected at a particular location, Spring Beach, collected by Brad Bebout, who is the collaborator who did the collection, uh, it was stored in the greenhouse. Various measurements were taken uh, of the um, uh, environment surrounding the mat in the greenhouse. These are oxygen concentration measurements, which were measured with an oxygen microsensor. A culture was, uh, was taken from the sample. The culture was cultivated by Mary uh, with a recipe, which was a Word document. Uh, there was an image that was generated from that culture, and that was imaged with an electron microscope. So there's a whole rich uh, set of information that surrounds that particular sample, and is very important for indexing and, and reconstructing what happened. Next slide, please. So the key idea behind the use of semantic technologies in this science application is that to facilitate the storage and retrieval and comprehension of scientific data, you need to capture the, science, the semantic context associated with the data products. Don't just store the data alone. Next slide, please. And we're moving to slide 11. So you might ask, um, how is context typically preserved uh, by scientists? Well, I have to say that generally it isn't, and I, I reiterate that a lot of it uh, remains in their head. Uh, but you do get a little bit of uh, breadcrumb trails when you take a look at their uh, file naming uh, structure, for example. They have some file naming conventions that uh, uh, may tell you a bit about uh, the context. But, of course, everybody uses different file naming conventions, and so this isn't a very reliable approach either. Uh, next slide. So what I'm going to do now is get more into the representation and architecture of uh, Science Organizer. Uh, what you see here is a depiction of uh, something I'm sure uh, many people who are on the telecon are familiar with, uh, given that we're, uh, this is a, a group focused on ontologies. But uh, this is a representation of the semantic network structure uh, 
that is the basic representation underlying science organizer. There are nodes that represent uh, key resources, key information resources, uh, that describe people and places and measurements and field trips and hypotheses and so forth. There are attributes, which are properties of the resources. There are links between the resources. And there are attached files. So the attached files are the essentially the data products that uh, – typically, as I've been saying, are the only thing that the scientists uh, collect, the data products. And so what we've done is to build a superstructure on top of those data products uh, using semantic nets and ontologies. So the ontology, of course, provides the, the guidance, the rules the, for um, specifying the types of nodes and attributes and links that are defined for any particular scientific team. Uh, we also have a set of rules that can add or modify nodes in the network and uh, change the, the links and attributes. Uh, next slide, please. I'd like to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, the ontology and the rules uh, at this point. Um, we're on slide 13. So this gives you a depiction of uh, a portion of the astrobiology ontology. Um, you can see that there are classes representing sites and people, uh, various types of equipment and measurements, uh, DNA sequences, cultures, and, and so forth. Um, now, the the whole ontology is uh, is quite a bit larger and, and not possible to show on on a single slide. Um, can I have the next slide, please? This slide depicts uh, just some of the relationships between uh, some of the classes, and, and I focused here on the culture class. Uh, the culture can be uh, cultivated from a sample, can be cultivated by a person, has a genetic sequence associated with it potentially, can be pictured in an image, and so forth. Next slide, please. Now, in Science Organizer, we have essentially a unified uh, master ontology. And what I'm showing you in this slide, which is number 15, is um, essentially the, the, the upper ontology, the very, the very tip of it. And it's really just schematic again, because the, the overall ontology has, has over 300 classes. Um, and you can see the various types of, uh, of entities that are represented, uh, social structures, activities, data, ideas, and so forth. Um, we used an RDFS-like ontology representation language uh, to represent the ontology. We didn't use RDFS um, because actually at the time we started this, which was all the way back in 1999, uh, RDF really wasn't quite there in terms of uh, being a standard. And so, um, you know, at that point, we, we essentially built our own representation. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, this just gives a simple example of how uh, we use rules in the system. Um, 
what you see in this diagram uh, on uh, slide 16 is that we have a MAT sample, MAT 654, uh, which is collected by uh, Brad Bebout, who is our collaborator, one of our collaborators, who works in a biogeochemistry lab. And um, if you apply the rule in red, uh, then you find out that actually Brad can be considered the custodian for the MAT because if a sample S is collected by a person, P, and the sample S has no custodian, then we should infer that the person P is the custodian for S. So if Brad collected it, he probably is the custodian for it. So that would enable you to infer a link between Brad and the MAT in terms of custodianship. Uh, if you then uh, chain to the following uh, green uh, link, or green rule, you would see that um, if a person is a custodian for a sample and the person works in a particular laboratory, then the sample is likely to be, at least, stored in that laboratory. So that allows us to infer uh, the green link stored at. And so these simple rules um, allow us to augment the uh, semantic network without the users having to create these links manually. Because typically, as you'll see uh, shortly, uh, next slide please, as you'll see shortly, uh, primarily the users are the ones who are creating these links as they enter the information. So what should be coming on your screen now is slide 17, which is Science Organizer's uh, browser-based interface. Um, so the, uh, the way we handle uh, the browsing process is essentially to browse directly the semantic network structure. So this browse, uh, this page is showing the uh, system focused at the MAT sample, uh, Spring M4B, which you see on the right-hand side of the display. So the MAT sample is an object, an instance, really, um, in the semantic network structure. And on the left-hand side, you see all of the, um, the nodes that emanate from that particular uh, node in the semantic network structure. So you see that um, the uh, metadata or the properties associated with the node, uh, the MAT sample node, are illustrated on the right. You see there's a collection date for the sample, a collection time, uh, a set of microorganisms that might be found in that sample, water temperature, and so forth and so on. Actually, on the bottom, you'll see that there are read and write permissions. The uh, access control is, is very important in the system, and I'm not, probably not going to get into that too much, but it, it, it pretty much mimics a, a Unix-type uh, um, access control system. Now, on the left-hand side, you see uh, the links uh, associated with the MAT sample, you see that uh, the MAT sample was collected at Spring Beach, uh, collected by Brad Bebout, uh, collected during a particular field trip, and so on. And um, in the red circle, you see a pictured-in link, and that uh, there's a picture of this particular sample. And, and if in the browser I were to click on that link, uh, we would go to the next slide, slide number 18, and we would traverse 
through the semantic network along that link, and we would see uh, the uh, photo object, uh, spring M4B, uh, showing now as the focal uh, point of the browser. And on the left-hand side, um, you see the uh, linkages coming out of the photo. Now, one of those linkages, of course, is the inverse link, uh, which goes back to the sample that we just came from, Spring M4B. But there's also links to the camera that was used and so forth. Next slide, please. So we're moving on to slide 19, where I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the architecture of the system. At the top, there's a, a layer uh, which talks about the interfaces to the system. And we've just spoken about the node browser interface, which is not only a browser, but it's also an editor. It allows you to create the links, create the objects, upload data, and so forth. So that is the main interface to the system. We also have a number of specialized structure editors, which allow you to visualize portions of the semantic network uh, using specialized visualizations. Uh, we have an API, which allows other uh, agents or programs to interact with the repository and to uh, programmatically deposit information and retrieve information from the repository. We have a connection with uh, Microsoft Office, uh, a, a set of macros that allows us to upload uh, documents directly into the repository. And beneath this layer, we have the representation and reasoning layer. And um, as I mentioned, uh, most of the stuff that we built was actually built uh, by us, custom, because there weren't a lot of semantic uh, web tools available. It's a, quite a different uh, landscape now, um, almost eight years after we started uh, doing the development on this this work. So we we have an ontology, of course, and uh, we have essentially a uh, a triple store, uh, which is the semantic repository, which stores the instances of the objects in the ontology. We have an inference engine which runs the rules and is based on on Jess, uh, the Java Expert System shell. Uh, which is, you see at the implementation layer below. We make use of uh, WordNet, WordNet as well for some of our work in analyzing the text of some of these objects uh, and documents that are uploaded. And, uh, maybe I'll say a word about that in a moment. Uh, we also have an email ingester, which uh, ingests email for the group and allows them to collaborate using email and a semantic annotation facility, which does some automated uh, annotation. Uh, at the bottom uh, layer, the implementation layer, we're making use of Java servlets and Apache, and uh, the triple store is implemented in a MySQL database. And then we, we make use of the file system, of course, for, for storing images and documents and so forth. Uh, next slide, please. So I'm not going to really have time to discuss all of these uh, different features in, in much detail, but um, offline you can take a look at the, the uh, slides, and at the end of the deck there are some more uh, descriptions of these various features. And, of course, you're, you're free to uh, 
to uh, send email or uh, get in touch with me, and I, I'd love to talk more about these. We have uh, some interesting search capabilities because, obviously, search is one of the things that uh, we've focused on in doing this work and providing ability for scientists to easily access information using the, some of the semantic uh, classes and relationships. So we have a text-based uh, search, which is just a straightforward uh, full-text kind of search um, over the documents and uh, uploaded uh, content, uh, such as you would find in a, in a content repository or content management system. We also have a semantic search capability, which allows the user to specify a small pattern, uh, a, uh, a pattern in the semantic network that should be matched. And uh, so we, we've got that. Uh, as I mentioned, we have an email uh, discussion list kind of integration where the uh, group can uh, hold, they can con create a, uh, an email uh, discussion list within Science Organizer. And then the email that is, um, is sent to the list is, is, is turned into uh, a node in the network structure, which then can be linked to, uh, for example, any uh, objects or uh, concepts that are discussed in the email message. For example, if, a, if an email message discusses a field trip, it's possible then to link that field, that field trip directly to a node representing that email message. Um, and we actually have an automated feature that uh, parses the text in the email messages and tries to perform entity recognition within the email messages and do automatic linking of the email messages to objects in Science Organizer. I mentioned Microsoft Office integration. We have a collaborative whiteboarding feature that allows uh, distributed uh, team members to call up images from Science Organizer and annotate them Blackboard style. Uh, and finally, we've got uh, a number of very interesting applications where we connect to external agents, and I'll say a little bit more about them in my final slides. Next slide, please. So the system was. Can you give was, me a slide number, please? Yes, uh, we're on slide 21. Thank you. Uh, so the uh, the system was initially deployed in 2001. Uh, at the peak of usage, we had over 400 registered uh, individual users from over 50 organizations within NASA. We hosted over 30 projects and had a, a quite a sizable uh, repository of information. Um, at the current point, we have perhaps a handful of projects who still use the system. We occasionally get additional requests. But the system essentially has uh, uh, undergone funding cuts, and we, we don't have support anymore for uh, continuing the work. Uh, so we're just kind of running on on, uh, on empty, and uh, it's kind of unfortunate, but that's, that's the way things have gone. Their priorities have shifted within NASA. Uh, next slide, please. So I wanted to... Um, make it clear that actually Science Organizer is an application of something else, uh, that there 
what we've done is to pull out the guts of science organizer and turn it into what we call semantic organizer. So semantic organizer is the core system, the shell, if you will, uh, and you add an application-specific ontology to uh, semantic organizer, and what you get out of that is a is a um, a system that supports a different type of collaborating team. And so we've not only worked with collaborating scientific teams, we've worked with collaborating accident investigation teams, collaborating teams of software engineers and software VNV folks. Um, uh, we've worked with teams that are doing collaborative mission design for NASA and so on. And uh, Aside from science organizer, I would say that the investigation organizer application is the one that, that's uh, received the, the most acclaim. Uh, we actually uh, use the system to support the Columbia Accident Investigation Board at the time of the Columbia accident. And at that point, um, we assisted the, uh, the team in tracking accident data, uh, interview transcripts, physical evidence, uh, system manuals, um, operating procedures, whatever. And we also stored accident hypotheses and supporting and refuting evidence within Investigation Organizer. Uh, next slide, please. So I've just, uh, we're on slide 23. This is the uh, second to last slide. Um, I just wanted to highlight some of the different types of deployments that we have uh, had with Science Organizer. Um, I mentioned to you the astrobiology field and lab science work that we did. Uh, there was a team studying uh, disease vectors in Kenya uh, where we had a distributed team uh, of folks from NIH, NASA, and Tulane University. Uh, we hosted an image archive for uh, geologists and geneticists who are working at Johnson Space Center uh, with Martian meteorites, and they were studying uh, the Martian meteorites for, for uh, clues to uh, uh, life on Earth and life on Mars. Um, in the bottom right corner, uh, we worked with the Mars Exploration Rover team uh, to prototype a, uh, an application of Science Organizer for the long-term planning to hypotheses and relate them to rover observations, you know, the data transmitted back to the Earth from the rovers, and provide linkages to supporting and refuting evidence uh, regarding the hypotheses on uh, the origins of water uh, on Mars. And um, lastly, on the left-hand side, I want to highlight some work that we did with uh, simulated Mars surface exploration, where we used the repository um, essentially as a, um, a repository for a series of exploration simulations, where humans and uh, uh, robots uh, were dispersed to the um, the desert in Utah, and the idea was to study how humans and robots collaborate to do exploration, in this case, geological exploration. And the humans and robots um, relayed some of their field observations, their images, and their voice recordings 
uh, into Science Organizer via a wireless network that was deployed out at the field site in Utah. And then uh, a set of Earth-based, quote-unquote, Earth-based scientists, simulated uh, Earth-based scientists, would then access the repository from afar and review the data and provide assistance to that uh, uh, simulated exploration team on what they should be exploring next. So um, let me look. To, uh, move now to the last slide, which is slide 24. And um, I want to thank everybody for uh, for listening, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to tell you about Science Organizer. Here are some uh, additional references. Uh, that you can take a look at uh, for more information. So that's it. Hey, really well done, Rich. Thanks very much. Uh, now, Peter, uh, in order to follow the protocol, I think we're going to hold off questions for Rich until after Rob and Ralph have a chance to present, correct? Yes, that would be best. Okay. Uh, took lots of notes, Rich. Thanks very much. Um, always great to to hear uh, about this work. So, Rob, uh, if you're ready, I think uh, we're queued up for you now. You there, Rob? I'm here, yes. Okay. Thanks very much. Why don't you take it away? Okay. We'll wait for the slides to pop up. Well, thank you. Thanks, Andy. So I'm going to talk about uh, the development of SWEET, which is a set of ontologies for Earth system science. This project was funded originally about five years ago uh, by NASA to help with the discovery of Earth system science data. And uh, the, we're in the process of a transition now into making this actually a community ontology. And that's really the, the bulk of my talk is going to be on what, what is involved in that, uh, that activity. Uh, we're, this, uh, essentially, a, we're funded for three years to make that, to make that transition. And, uh, that, that's going to be, um, it, that's created some interesting issues in itself to convert from a, essentially a centralized repository to one that would be more decentralized. Uh, the, the field of Earth system science is, is rather interesting in itself in that it has many sub-disciplines to it, has many applications. And it, it also kind of has bucked the trend of science. The usual trend of the last several hundred years has been reductionism, breaking things down into finer and finer pieces, uh, greater and greater detail. But while that still applies, Earth system science also has the, the opposite aspect to it, that of uh, holism, of integrating many different subjects. For instance, if you really want to understand the Earth system, you need to understand geology, you need to understand chemistry, atmospheric science, oceanography, and so forth. So uh, in, that, in that respect, it may be somewhat unique, but it, 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 it stands as a good example of a very large system that can be modeled uh, through ontology. So uh, next slide, please. So just to put this in perspective, uh, NASA collects lots of data. And it's sometimes said that the role of a scientist is to convert data to knowledge. 
And this diagram kind of shows where ontology, where ontologies fit into the scheme of things. The data starts out as just, just raw bytes. And uh, the basic elements, uh, as, it, as we get, we convert from data to knowledge, those bytes get to determine, get converted to numbers, and then different models, and finally into facts. And you can explore on many different dimensions how data differ from knowledge. In the case of services, all you can do with at the raw at the raw data level, you can, you can save it. That's about it. But once you convert it to information, you're, you're essentially summarizing that data. And then that, that process you're visualizing. And once you start to get some understanding, that's where you get into the, the knowledge phase. That's where you can infer, understand, and make, make some kinds of predictions. In terms of storage, uh, at the raw data side, it's just, just stored as file. Whereas the other extreme, uh, knowledge is really basically can be is really stored in our heads, but we also can use ontologies, and that's that's really with the niche that ontology fits. It's a computer uh, computerized way of of storing that that kind of couples our our how our mind might store uh, facts and knowledge information. Uh, data is very high volume and low density, whereas knowledge is low volume but very high density. So, so there may be fewer facts, but they, these facts carry a lot of, uh, lot of uh, stuff associated with them. So this, this right-hand side is, is really, this knowledge domain is, is really what we're talking about, the semantics, the meaning and understanding of data, whereas the data side was just uh, the syntax. Next slide, please. Slide three. So, so knowledge is its facts and relations and its meanings uh, and the context. It, and that, perhaps context is, is the, the key word here. It's, it's information, the information which is, is data that's been summarized, but it's providing the context to that information. It's essentially common sense uh, uh, information. And it's shared understanding of the meaning of, of concepts and terms. And it's in a form that's suitable for reasoning and inference. And, and like any knowledge, it's, it's something that's dynamic. It's expandable. That's really the key, the key aspect of knowledge. Next slide, please. So once we have our knowledge, our knowledge reservoir, uh, the application we've worked mostly with has been improving search. Uh, the idea is to enable a wide range of users to find resources that are out there, to find research results. And they may not know the right search term to use. And an intelligent search tool enables a person to find, to access a knowledge base, and perhaps there's a semantic mismatch. Suppose you're looking for... Uh, a concept with that you're describing in a more general terms than the way it's registered. Well, with an ontology, you can find results through a search engine without having this exact keyword match. And then the results can be clustered by synonyms, by, by parents, and, and, and by children. So this is something that goes beyond what a search engine, a standard search engine like Google can do. Because Google has some understanding of the meaning of, of terms, 
but but not certainly not complete. And it, it only uses it tends to use the the meaning just for certain value added services that, that it provides. For instance, it, it understands places. If you put in a place name and uh, Google understands it to be a place name, it will then try to draw you a map or help you find or try to point out some services that might be associated with that with that uh, that place name. So what we're doing in terms of our science ontology is to help provide that science, common sense knowledge about science that can help a searcher find something and uh, find uh, the meaning, so they can understand the meaning of the words rather than just finding that word in a, in a, on a web page somewhere. Next page, please. So uh, University of Alabama Huntsville uh, took our suite ontology and they, de they developed a search tool out of that. And you can go to the, the website that, that's shown there. And this gives an example of, of the kinds of services that can be provided from a search tool that is ontology-aided. And it enables you to get access not just to web pages, but it can get you access to, to data, uh, directly to journal articles, because uh, the, the, the terms in suite are mapped to some keywords. Uh, in this case, we have a map to the American Meteorological Society uh, a keyword list, so you can get to directly a link to journal articles. And uh, also we're adding links to people, because we're developing a skills database, a list of experts. So not only will this tool give you access to resources that are uh, on the written page, but also resources that uh, are that are people, essentially. Next slide, please. So the focus of here is ontology, which is a, a way of storing uh, facts and knowledge. Um, the word ontology actually goes back many centuries. It was uh, it's always meant something to the extent of all that is known. But the word kind of came up again in the computer science context because it was it was desirable to know in an AI setting what could be known by this this computerized system. And ontology defines terms in terms of other terms. And that's exactly what a dictionary does. And it provides essentially knowledge reuse. So if we sometimes hear about software reuse or data reuse, this is really knowledge reuse by using this shared understanding of, of concepts. And then, and then enabling machine-to-machine -machine communication with, you know, with, with deep semantics, uh, more so than just strictly a controlled vocabulary. So this is something deeper than controlled vocabulary. Next slide, please. So OWL has emerged as standard language for representing ontologies. Uh, OWL has been accepted as a standard by the W3C. It's fairly simple. It's, it's fairly simple for people to use as well as machines. So in that sense, it's a compromise. It's not ideal for either people or for machines, but it's that comp compromise which lets it to be used by, by both. It has synonym support so that terms, um, multiple terms with, can have the same meaning and we just need to, we can label them as, uh, as such uh, with the same as and we can also even tag a community say, well, this community uses this terminology to mean that concept, and that community uses that terminology to, to refer to that concept. So we can create these 
these synonym rings to uh, support the use of uh, use by multiple communities. And there's also homonym support. Homonym is it says the opposite case where the same term can have multiple meanings, and uh, and there it's just a matter of keeping these in separate namespaces. Uh, the example shown the word bush can be president, could be a plant, and just by identifying the namespace associated with each, then uh, we, we um, can disambiguate the, the, the multiple meanings. Next slide. So we've had actually several experiences now with putting together in the same room some experts in some various domains and having them together with ontologists and sitting down and just creating these ontologies. It looks like this is a little bit hard to read, but uh, this example shown is of plate tectonics. We brought in uh, some experts from uh, from the field of plate tectonics to, and so you, I mean, the, the question sometimes comes up, well, how do you create these big ontologies? What, what, um, you know, what, what's the process? And uh, what the, the we found our best approach is to work together with with ontologists and together with you know to with together with these domain experts and to conduct these two day meetings and have them start from the, from the very beginning and maybe start by showing them some examples from other other disciplines and then have them sit down and and um this tool shown is a cmap it's an example of a a tool to develop uh, concept spaces, and now it also supports the use of OWL ontologies, essentially export to OWL ontologies. So this, in this particular example, the uh, the plate tectonics experts they mentioned uh, that the lithosphere it's a region in the Earth's atmosphere, and it has different um, has oceanic component, has continental component. And each of them has um, plate boundaries, and, uh, which is an example of a convergent boundary. And you can just follow through this entire entire ontology set, and basically you can trace it through. And um, this turned out to work worked out quite well with uh, with some of these specialists. This is fairly intuitive to them. And, uh, even for someone who doesn't know what an ontology is, we can work with them, and fairly quickly within. An, Within the first hour, they catch on that really this is something that's useful, and let's um, essentially put into words what they've kind of had in their head. Next slide, please. And we've done the same thing with uh, with atmosphere, in particular for uh, the study of climate, de defining what is climate, what are the forces associated with climate, and what to, how do these concepts relate to uh, other concepts uh, in different different disciplines. In this case. Atmosphere has a chemistry aspect to it. Has a has a geology aspect. Or excuse me, a, a, a oceanic interface aspect, uh, and uh, uh, so forth. So um, we later went back and then mapped these concepts back back into Suite. Next slide, please. So we're now on uh, slide ten. So Suite is it's a concept space, and in fact, it was was actually a lot of it was populated by a, a Russian student who didn't even speak very much English originally, and that really forced us to think about in terms of concepts instead of instead of, um, instead of the words itself. And then we could then go back and map 
the concepts into different languages and different cultures and different levels of expertise. In fact, uh, sometimes we find that, as I mentioned, the semantic mismatches often occur because someone's thinking at a more abstract level. That happens if you're comparing a, a child's uh, knowledge space to that of an expert. A child will be thinking just more in abstract levels. And then there needs to be a mapping ma between the two. So um, our objectives were to, uh, um, to have a, a scalable classification of concepts. We want this to make sure this would grow. And, uh, next slide, please. And this was originally our, uh, we call it Suite 1.0. This was how we broke down the, the ontologies. Uh, so there, there really are two classes of ontologies. There's the, the faceted set, where this is where the, the reductionism still apply, where we break concepts into finer and finer pieces. And then we have the integrative part, which are the, which are the, the holistic part, where we need to make use of all the, the, the facets, essentially, to describe it. So in terms of the fasted ontologies, on the right side, we have substances. These are things. They may be living things, or they could be non-living things. It could just be uh, like ozone, um, chlorophyll, so forth. And the physical processes, and these processes tend to change these things, and they move them around. There's realms of the, of the atmosphere, of the Earth system, of the different layers of the, of the ocean, of the, of, of the, um, the solid Earth. There's uh, physical properties that, uh, that and these are these are normalized because we can have a property like temperature. You can descri describe temperature of a of a living substance, temperature of a non-living substance, temperature of an earth realm, so forth. Even temperature of a process like uh, evaporation, you can describe temperature of the processes occurring. So in a sense, these are all inter independent of each other. And then there, there's additional independent normalized concepts uh, of space, time. Uh, units and numbers, these all, it's all kind of independent of each other. Then these all kind of go into the left, the left side where we look at these integrative ontologies where we're putting together, describing some of these natural phenomena, phenomena like earthquakes or hurricanes. You need to, to really describe those, or El Nino. You need to make use of a lot of these different concepts really to make these, to really come up with the descriptions of the of these, these phenomena. The same applies to human activities. They really, they're more complex than the, these scientific activities. Next slide, please. Okay, so that was our original approach, and it actually worked out quite well for its purpose. And it, it was fairly, fairly scalable, but not so scalable when we wanted to have, have this really be a community asset where different community members could come in and say, ah, I want to expand this part of the ontology. I want to add my specialized specialized knowledge of this area, this this domain, and I want to just expand. And just the idea is that, that suite would be essentially an upper-level ontology for Earth system science. Then users could come in, or specialized domains could come in, and and they could just add there just that delta that applies to that specialized domain. They wouldn't have to start over from, from scratch. So we we found that actually for purposes of of this next generation of suite, we needed a little bit more modular design. And that original dozen ontologies were now broken up down to, now we have something on the order of 60 ontologies. And this is organized by subject. Now we still have those, that decomposition into 
into, uh, as described in the previous slides. But though that decomposition isn't necessarily how the ontologies themselves are decomposed. The ontologies, the packages, they contain, so some packages, so the packages are actually arranged by subject. And within each package, you could have, uh, you could have some space concepts, you could have some time concepts, you could have some uh, uh, living or non-living concepts and so forth. But they're, they're organized now entirely by subject. This, so this diagram shows essentially a hierarchy of going from abstract subject to more specialized. So at the top level, we have just the more theoretical sciences like the physics, and chemistry, and the pure math. And at the bottom level are the applications. And in between, we have um, the second tier down. It's still science, but these are science when science hits hits the Earth atmosphere, Earth, Earth environment, Earth, Earth ocean, and so forth. So this is where we have such topics of ge as geophysical fluid, fluid dynamics, uh, biogeochemistry, bio so forth. So it's science in the in the Earth environment. And then. Uh, then we've got these regions, these realms of the planet. And this is really where a lot of the experts come in and the, the specialized uh, folks come in and they can add their their niche there. Though they also can add one layer, one tier up in the in the supporting geophysical phenomena. They can they can uh, specialize those as well. But we find this is this approach is a little bit better for enabling a group to come in and just fill in their, their niche. So these ontologies are all smaller. And they're, they're kind of grouped. They're bunched. They're like all the physics, like all the physics are kind of bunched together, uh, and all the chemistry ones are bunched together. But there's this now. I say it's an order of about 60 or so uh, ontologies uh, that are in here. And uh, some of these are stubs in the sense that these applications at the bottom they have not been filled in yet. But we're encouraging people to to fill them in and make them uh, part of the uh, part of the, 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 the sweet family. Next slide, please. Uh, next slide. Um, I don't see next slide yet. Give me a moment. Okay. So Sweet was an interesting project in itself because we were hoping that some of these more non-Earth science concepts would have been developed in ontologies externally by other groups. It turned out that wasn't the case, and we had to actually start from scratch five years ago. Now, some groups have developed some of these concepts, but for the most part, that really hasn't happened. So we had to, we had to develop some of these supporting ontologies like numerics. Uh, OWL itself is very weak on numerical support, so we had to develop fully developed concepts such as um, intervals and then relations on these intervals, and then the Cartesian products and functions and fuzzy concepts. And, uh, uh, and then once we had the, the numerics, we could then extend that to, be, to have spatial and temporal ontologies. Now, there are other spatial and temporal ontologies, but they, they're not really grounded on the, this, this numerics because really space and time are just special cases of the numeric uh, or our numerical concept. So time is just a one-dimensional space. We're using certain terms, certain concepts that are specific to time. And space is a, essentially a three-dimension that's three, or, or is constrained, constrained three-dimensional space. 
to a, to a two-dimensional uh, sphere. And, and so, but those follow from the the numerics. So this is an example we had to do to make this uh, make this uh, happen. Next slide, please. So, so on slide 14, we also had to develop an, a data ontology to describe characteristics of data sets. This included uh, provenance and uh, uh, special uh, 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 special values and parameters, uh, scale factors, offsets. Uh, um, Services that can be applied, uh, measures of quality. Sometimes we get data that has a label that's a quality of three. What does that mean? So the idea is to have some kind of generalized uh, measure of, um, of some of these these, uh, of these um, data content, da data characteristics. Um, the Sweden ontology in general is going to be maintained by the uh, ESIP Federation. ESIP is the Earth Science Information Partner Federation, and the ESIP Federation is a Consortium of a hundred data providers, and they will ultimately be the moderators and the managers of this ontology. And their their um, strength is in data understanding, and uh, so they'll be able to provide some additional support in this uh, this data ontology. And we're in the process of organizing a actually a a data ontology summit that'll be coming up. Oh, I think it's going to be in late May, and to actually discuss some of these issues of uh, data and data services. Next slide, please. So in terms of when we go to a community-level ontology, we need to come up with certain standards, best practices, and so forth. And one issue that comes up a lot is, well, how you get around some of the limitations of OWL. So this, this slide just shows an example of, well, how can you deal with OWL when OWL deals with triples? Just like RDF, it's it's really it's really all about triples, but many relations are really quadruples. Like an example, temperature has value 30 Celsius, or a person has expertise in some area like geology, and their expertise level is expert. So so you need to be able to get around some of these. You know, so, so you have, there there are lots lots of ways of getting around them. And we wanted to try to standardize you know some of these as part of this community activity. And so the way you do that is essentially you, you need to convert the quadruple into a triple. So you need to basically bundle at least two of the of the elements of the quadruple and make this thing into, turn the thing into a triple. So in that first example of temperature, you, you group together 30 and C, you create a 30 degree C element. So you, have to, you basically do this in two steps. So you first create this order uh, double 30 and C, and then you say temperature has, has value of that class 30C. Same thing with the other example. You first create this concept of a, a geology expertise. So you should then say John Smith has this, this geology expertise, um, and at the level, his level of expertise is expert. So this is an example of the kinds of things that we do, and we, we started to do in terms of this collaboration activity uh, as part of uh, this community effort. Next slide. So our experiences are to keep ontologies small and modular, uh, yield to the higher level ontologies where possible, uh, uh, because the imports in statement in all imports everything. And, and you look at the dependencies. I, I showed a couple slides back in Suite 2.0, the general to the specialized. Well, that dependency works in one direction. The, the more specialized ontologies only import the general ones. It doesn't work both way, both ways. 
Um, and this, this makes it easy to keep track of the dependencies because you need to know if, if something changes in one ontology. Uh, if there's a dependent ontology downstream, you need to be able to keep track of those dependencies and uh, so forth. And then we need to make sure we get buy-in from the community. And then, and then when we develop, we worked with our uh, communities, well, we worked with our uh, ontology development, we brought in respected leaders of, of the disciplines to get buy-in from those communities. Next slide. Now we've established a uh, website, planetont.org, and that, that's just gotten off the ground. And it's, it's to help support this, this ontology development activity. It includes, say, an RSS feed, so that uh, if your ontology is dependent on someone else's you'll, and, and that dependent ontology changes, that you'll be notified when that, that change occurs. Next slide, please. So our uh, future plans are um, to get further support from the community. We're going to have a workshop on uh, this subject at the upcoming ESIP Federation uh, meeting. And then we're going to submit SWEET as a community standard to, uh, to the NASA Standards and Processes uh, Working Group. Next slide. We've also, uh, in the process, of, uh, we've uh, developed a roadmap from NASA to look at well, what does it what what does it take really to support the semantic web uh, with the different dimensions of technology capabilities and results, and what are the um, the issues in the current near term, mid term, and long term, and how does this affect uh, investments that NASA can make. Uh, next slide. In terms of resources, uh, we have a Suite web page. Uh, the the Suite 2.0 is not up there yet because we're still vetting that. Uh, the um, planetont.org website is up there. Uh, Noesis is the um, search tool I mentioned developed at uh, Alabama Huntsville. And then uh, SESG, that's the uh, most recent, recent effort to to uh, coordinate these activities as a community uh, community activity. And I'll stop there, and uh, we'll take questions later. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, Rob. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's interesting for the community listening that both yours and Rich's presentation really demonstrate um, arriving at these technologies pushed by need and requirement as opposed to uh, you know, looking for an excuse to deploy the technology. So really good stuff there. Um, so, uh, Ralph, uh, we'll turn to you in keeping with our, our theme, our alliteration. And if you're ready, uh, I think we're ready for you. Ralph Hodgson, you online? Yeah, I just, I just unmuted. Uh, oh, great. Uh, Check that you can hear me. Yep, that's fine. And I'm not going to be looking at how these slides are coming up. So I'll be saying next slide and just uh, an act of faith will go on there, yeah? And Peter, I guess, is the guy pressing that button, yeah? Okay, so with hey, that, uh, I'm going to... I got the last slot here and uh, keeping everyone from the next things they have to do. Uh, I just need a time check with someone. Um, I think um, I'm running 30 minutes still. Is that correct? That's right, Ralph. Radio. Okay, so I've been working with ontologies in NASA since 2002, and we started work on the digital shuttle, how to have ontologies that express shuttle. I'm, I'm in the engineering side of the business, although we do touch things that Rob Raskin has just talked about. 
we have ontologies of units, for example, and we have ontologies of data types. So sometimes we have to do alignment and figure out how all this is going to be governed uh, across the Constellation program. Um, so what I'm going to present is what is what does it mean to use ontologies in data architecture? What do you do with such an information model? How does it become useful to applications? What happens when you get into hundreds of ontologies? And like uh, the last talk, I'll be emphasizing modularity. I'll be emphasizing the, the need to be able to uh, distinguish name graphs from ontologies and data sets. There are, there are various uh, organizing principles that you have to follow to build ontologies. And best practices are starting to be um, talked about, and it's a great thing to happen. So with that, next slide. Um, here's the menu, what there is to cover. I'll introduce myself only briefly. I'll talk about the ontology work within the Constellation program, which is the manned missions to Moon and Mars, uh, how we're returning to the Moon with uh, the, the vehicles that we're building and the mission plans that, that are in place. And then we'll talk about data architecture, what it's like to uh, formalize that, and how the NEXIUM, which, is, which stands for NASA Exploration Initiative Ontology Models, and then I'll give some examples, and uh, we'll do the Q&A later. Uh, this little icon at the bottom right, I, I will actually use, since I'm not able to drive a pointer, I will use a clock to uh, remind me that it's time to move on, of course, but also to tell you where to look on the slide. So when I say look at 5 o'clock or look at 6 o'clock, I'm telling you where to go on the slide. When I say center or outer, I'll be telling you to move out a little bit. Um, these slides are going to be busy. This, this little balancing thing tells me I've got to stop do, doing deep dives. I've got to keep my eye on the, on, on the clock here. So next slide. Uh, here, this is slide three. It says who I am. I, prior to starting a company in the U.S. to do a systematic technology, I was in process control. I was in IBM, actually, um, immediately prior to But my background that relates to NASA work, is, which is why it's so fun to be involved with NASA, is that I, I built machine controllers in my past. I've done telemetry and commanding. I've, I've, I've been a geologist as well. So this all comes together in a very nice way. <laughs> Uh, with semantics and ontologies, and, uh, and this slide is also saying I've written a few books. Um, next slide. Um, the data architecture is a guidance, of course, but it's also a framework for how to think about how information flows, how it's produced, how it's consumed by various stakeholders, um, what, how that information is put into work, how it's used to make transformations to make work products, for example, the payloads on telemetry, are defined using ontologies. Uh, we have to live in a heterogeneous world, so we generate from our ontologies um, ASN.1 and XML representations. Uh, interoperability is a huge thing in the industry right now. Um, we'll be able to talk a little bit about that, um, but not too much on, in this talk. But the, suffice to say that data architecture is kind of like enterprise architecture in that you want to know some map of what's going on and how information, as I say, is, is put to use. And next slide. Um, I bite number five. Love Ralph, could you mention bite number two? I'm on slide five now. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Have you kept that? Yes. Yes, yes but okay, good. 
call out. Okay, so here we see a Hubble picture. I, I like the metaphor of using the universe to give a kind of mental map of where we have to um, go to consider uh, things when we're building ontologies and we're building new approaches to things. There's a universe of things out there already, of course, and when I ask you to go to... Um, Two o'clock on this picture, on the outer regions there, you'll see product life cycle management and product data management and FIATEC standard S1000D in Europe, uh, also in the U.S. actually, a NATO standard for documentation, EOD, EOTD is a standard for how to talk about parts um, in, in an industry standard way. If we go over it um, on the other side, the opposite side of this picture, we see how software engineering use cases, UML enters the picture with STEP and AP233 and system engineering. Why are we concerned with all these spaces? Um, domain spelt wrongly here, I notice. Um, it's because we're representing systems. And if we want to represent systems, how a vehicle is made up of things, we, we, we run into SysML, which is based on UML. There's an initiative that I started with in COSI called SysMO, which is how to use ontology to describe systems, and this brings in the center of the picture here. Right in the center is this thing called SBFI, Structure, Behavior, Function, and Interface. The insight here is any system can be represented as its structural um, representation, part of kinds of things, behavior, state-based kinds of things, function, what it does, and interface is how it interacts with other people, or other systems, sorry. Uh, Nexium to the right, uh, because it's got quite a... Um, a connection to the SBFI ideas, um, X, CXDA to the right of that is, is where we depict um, the work we're doing with Constellation Data Architecture. Because people think metadata, when we're doing with this, there's a, in the bottom right there at um, 5 o'clock, uh, you see all the metadata standards, ISO 11179, XMDR, uh, going through some kind of... Uh, machination right now, I would describe it as some sort of change because they're trying to bring it into the R world and relate it to thinking about domains. So part of my presentation draws from what I just recently did at the DAMA, the, data, sorry, the uh, metadata conference here in San Diego, which is where I'm speaking from. Uh, I presented some of these things, and people are constantly talking about what is metadata now. <laughs> part of what we have to deal with in the data architecture world for sure. Uh, over at um, 7, 8 o'clock on the bottom left there, you see a lot of enterprise architecture initiative. We've borrowed from DODAF, the um, Department of Defense, ideas on operation nodes to characterize how things uh, flow. You know, what is an operation node? How does the information get uh, to be exchanged? Those exchange characteristics uh, you'll find in DODAF, but we have to go beyond that. Uh, system engineering, up from there, around 9 o'clock, we, we see some of the system thinking and viable system modeling ideas out there. And, of course, all of the ontology engineering stuff, um, bottom of center, just bottom of center there, you'll see some of the influences on ontology methodology. Moving on, slide six. Now, we're very keen on competency questions. If you're building ontologies, there's basically three kinds of ontologies. Ontology of something, like the cancer ontology. Uh, ontology about something, which is the map of the mall, you know, the, the terrain map, if you like. And ontology for something, 
which is an ontology that's put to work for a purpose. This is an ontology driven by requirements, and the requirements take the form of competency questions. What kinds of questions should the ontology answer? And here you see uh, a list of the kind of questions we're answering in the data architecture. Who owns this? Who uses it? Who can share it? What are the organization's obligations with respect to it? What's the provenance of it? All of those kinds of questions. Slide seven. Um, it sounds like metadata, all of this stuff. Um, but what does it mean to say metadata is data about data? We get into these distinctions, descriptive, provenance, relevance, governance, infrastructure. These are the question areas that require us to move beyond uh, simple notions of metadata as attributes to metadata as uh, relationships. Someone's metadata, next slide, slide eight, someone's metadata is someone else's data. So you get yourself talking about this in different contexts and you'll find that people care about metadata in different ways. ITAR is a restriction that's placed on U.S. property and other governments in the world have the same idea that if something is ITAR restricted, it shouldn't travel across a, a, a country boundary. That's metadata to some people, but it's operational data to other people. Um, so this notion that we can do a data architecture with metadata gets to be uh, quite uh, tricky at times. Uh, so moving to slide nine, what the, we conclude from this, that <coughs> when we ask the question, what is metadata really, it, it, it's data to make data for sure, data to manage data, data needed to relate data, and it quickly becomes ontology. The, the, the bullet above that statement is actually making the point, isn't it interesting that when we talk about metamodels, we mean the model in which we express a model. <laughs> but we don't mean that when we say metadata. So we've got some history to this word that we're trying to um, get past when we introduce ontological ways of thinking about this. Next slide. Um, and people have done this in other places. On slide 10 here, you see how SEAC, it's a very good depiction of a maturity model of data, which makes the point that as you're trying to get higher up this maturity model, you, you, you have to think ontological. I always say that when, when even a spreadsheet, which is constructed a taxonomy, has ontological commitments, that the columns of the spreadsheet are very often places to stand to look at what it is you're trying to express in that taxonomy. And, and we find ourselves making ontological commitments in many ways in every aspect of our work. What we're trying to do here is formalize that. Slide 11. The metadata we can express in ontologies will still serve as a data standard and still help to do things, but it will be precise. Unlike documented things that can go wrong, get misaligned, we look for precise specifications from which we can generate documents. And these are machine intelligible, of course. That slide 12. We are life cycle focused. The Constellation program builds, well, it specifies contractually how things are going to be built and provided to NASA and NASA operates these things and provides surveillance over it. Life cycle starts as you see at 9 it's, um, where do we go? It's uh, 6 o'clock here on design uh, to manufacture. As we go around this thing in the center here we get to test and verification, modeling simulation, uh, sorry, mission, mission, mission systems and their operations, ground systems, how things are maintained, how they're upgraded and what we learn from the, the test of use. Uh, it's a continual cycle and there's a huge 
um, problem of traceability, of being able to relate things across the, the disparate activities that go on. Nexium uh, is concerned with many system engineering artifacts, as you see in the bottom here, and the data architecture serves as an integrating framework for that. Um, as we move on to slide 13, uh, and past that, I think, more appropriately, we, we, we have to kind of reintroduce OWL at this point. <laughs> I want to make, before we get to the next slide, I want, which, which really speaks to that life cycle and framework a bit better. But here I'm very often in the, in, 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 the, in, the, in the mode of trying to explain what OWL is to people. And, and I've tried various ways. And sometimes I'll say, think of it as entity relationship models on steroids. Think of it as XML++. XML gave us, you know, parent-child relationships, ways of uh, separating syntax from structure, all of that set of arguments. But what starts to work and gets very clear to people is speaking of the importance of you, everything having a unique identifier at the bottom of the stack here. This is the latest uh, W3C stack. Everything having a unique resource identifier is the big idea, the powerful idea of being able to do aggregation using RDF triples as the aggregating um, concept and then using the same thing for schema as well. The idea that the schema lives in the same formalism as the content of your ontologies is, a, is the next powerful idea, that you can query the schema at the same time. And there you find richness in relationships. As you move up the stack, those relationships can be qualified with axioms and constraints and, get, and, and give us the ability to express models. And, and this was never the intent of XML, but it's become, unfortunately, it's some epidemic in the industry to take UML and various other uh, imprecise formalisms to, to represent uh, what should be represented in a more precise way with, with OWL. And we are facing that um, coexistence in the Constellation program because XML isn't going to go away. And it's, it is a transport mechanism, as you see here. It's not the only transport mechanism for semantic technology-based approaches. But we are having to uh, generate from our, own, our models the XML schemas that are going to be used by NASA's contractors to provide engineering data. That, that's already happening, and I'll give you a sense of that uh, in this presentation. Slide 14. The other thing we encounter uh, with engineers is the resistance to, to, to the word, the K-words. What is a knowledge model? The, knowledge, the K-word has got a bad press because of the knowledge management, uh, the failure of knowledge management in many places, and uh, the, uh, the buzz around all of that. So we sometimes have to call them information models. But they, the point of this slide is the gesture that it's very clear to people if they're doing risk analysis, they need fault trees, they need failure mode effect analysis models, they need probabilistic risk assessment models. It's very clear that people do design, that they need architecture and for software design, UML models, which is where I don't have any issue with UML, of course. And then CAD models give another example of that. If you're doing decision support, impact analysis, information discovery, information merging, you need knowledge models. And this is the way in which we often have to uh, convey that um, message. Slide 15 gives you a sense in, in which we're framing this in the domains. We have about 100 ontologies, or over 100. I don't know the last count. I, I want to actually speak to that later because of the three distinctions 
uh, were two that operate in that list of 100 are name graphs and namespaces, but we'll come to that later. But here you see an example of the kinds of things that uh, represent the segmentation of our work. And at the engineering level, how do we talk about vehicles and their design and their systems and parameters? At the process level, how do we talk about the engineering that goes on around that? And at the mission level, we need a mission ontology and we need uh, ways of representing organizations, uh, enterprise concerns like that. Slide 16 uh, gives you a little bit of a scenario, a concept of operations picture, storyboard here that says, I'm in mission ops. This is the screen that you see to the immediate right of the top uh, thing that's dealing with mission, uh, positioned at it 1 o'clock here. Uh, one o'clock on it on an, in an inner sense. So if someone is looking at a timeline and they see something in a telemetry screen and they want to know what that anomaly or that alarm out of limits relates to and was there a failure mode effects model that uh, showed what could um, be the effect of such a alarm transgression, uh, how do we relate that to any simulation? Trick is a simulator like MATLAB. How do we take that down through functional flow diagrams and N2 diagrams onto product breakdown structure to identify which part of the vehicle we should be concentrating on to see what the um, scope of effect might be from a, uh, an alarm like this? So connecting the dots, again, the mantra of the semantic web, how to connect the dots across disparate representations. Slide 17 now moves into the framework. You know, How do we... Uh, introduce all these ideas of modeling data, providing explicit definitions. There is a depiction here of how we provide a data architecture model in the top of this interesting picture where we have um, the, the role of that in terms of how it supports the description of data definitions, how it provides mechanisms for data use, and how it sets the conditions for data preservation. In the context of doing uh, system engineering and modeling, of course, around all that, as you see in the in, in the bottom substrate. And in slide 18, we are um, showing a, another kind of framework for the, um, which is a very, I think, powerful depiction. I owe, I owe to Paul Keller, my colleague at NASA, for how to convey the pieces of a data architecture. Uh, and when we presented this at the conference out here in San Diego, people said, yes, that's our problem as well, and you really have to do the bottom bit of this well before you move on to the other thing. So the bottom bit being, let's agree on how we're going to name things and how we're going to identify things. The difference between a name and identifier, I hope, is clear to people. I have a name. My email address is very often my identifier when I've lost my password. You know, the thing that identifies me in the U.S. is my social security number and, um, and or my passport number. Uh, these are identifiers. They're, they're not names. And in the same way, we have identifiers on vehicles and all of their devices. Having established the NUR, as we call it, is a fond little name for that, the NUR gives us the ability to then define data types. What are the data types you want to standardize? Then we have information types above that, information structures above that, like um, um, calibration, compression, um, randomization, and telemetry. Uh, the unit's conversion lives up there. Uh, models then sit above all that. And, and in fact, models drive everything below as well by being able to generate uh, much of what's in the lower strata, strata of, of this picture. 
metadata to the right, it's everywhere um, in different forms. Uh, naming in design rules to the left, where you see XML in the bottom. Every agency has or should have a XML NDR, naming in design rules specification. We also have an OWL NDR. And then in coding rules, uh, they're there to say how we're going to construct names, how we're going to put things into payloads, in telemetry. Uh, the encoding rules uh, follow abstract uh, syntaxes like ASM.1. NASA is very document-centric, so from our ontology models, we have had to generate documents. Um, there's a, um, a importance to that in organizations so that things can be reviewed. One of the challenges is, is, and it's come up on this call already, is how do you get verification of your ontologies when we have to go through such a, a cycle? And we've addressed that by uh, a number of ways that um, follow NASA protocols. And, um, so moving on to slide, I think it's slide 19. We give an example of how um, naming works. Uh, here we have a valve, in the, in, a supply valve that's part of a fuel system, that's part of a propulsion system at the first stage of the crew launch vehicle. The valve can have six states, actually. It can be open, closed, stuck, open, stuck, closed, transitioning, indeterminate. Um, and those states, of course, are modeled in the ontology. And we have here an example, not of the state, um, identifier, but it's the identifier of the valve, where we have a, what's called a functional perspective. There are three or four perspectives. This is the what perspective. What are we measuring? We're measuring a pressure on a supply valve, perhaps, which is in the liquid oxygen side of the uh, main propulsion system of the first stage of the CLV. This is called the CXSID. It gets compacted into other forms for telemetry use. Uh, the, the definite description grammars and the way we hold this are all ontologically based. Um, the rules for how you concatenate names and how you, you make these names. Next slide. Um, slide 20 is saying we, we have to have a registry, and we're building that registry to be able to do all this. That registry is kind of like the Rosetta Stone. It's ontolo ontologically based, and it's um, the Rosetta Stone in the sense that local name conventions have to be able to map to um, the constellation identifier, as it's called. So, again, the need to connect across silos, but done with semantic technology. The, the roles of this system of registries, the SOR, as it's called, um, are described a little bit in a couple of vignettes here. This, this vignette is saying a sensor with its name and parameters shows up with a name in a table column, a name in a packet ID and a telemetry a payload, uh, it shows up in a, perhaps in a UML sense in a case registry. This is why the, the Rosetta Stone notion of a registry is needed, um, and that, that gives one, um, as they say, one kind of use case of, of, of what's going on here. Why do we care about naming? Well, very often valves are called different things, and this example says that a flow control valve could be named in software as a three-way mix valve. In telemetry and telecommanding, it could be called the heat exchange bypass valve. These are uh, different names that are reconciled by using um, our constructs and by using naming conventions. We, um, as I said earlier, we use a grammar-based approach to this, so we have uh, definite descriptions, and this picture on 23, I'm moving to 23 now, 
um, shows you a bit of the architecture of the of the grammar engine, the, the ontology-driven grammar engine. I, I, I think I'd rather go to 24 to tell you how this works. I, I, I want to name a hydraulics valve. The ontology says uh, we know about those. It has a particular um, structure, that name. It has a system row like main auxiliary. It has a interface row like inbound or outbound. It then has a maybe a chemical name, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and then it has a functional name like fill, drain, purge, bleed, vent. These functional names form a hierarchy, or, um, and it's interesting to make a reference to uh, the Mitsubishi, sorry, the Mitsugushi lab in Japan, who have done some good work in the same area of device ontologies and function uh, ontologies that allow you to describe. Um, all the functions of uh, hold all the functions of different devices in a in, in an owl ontology. We um, use Sparkle queries to reference the ontology to figure out what can be named, how it can be named, and we're using uh, at the moment we're using an Antler uh, attribute grammar to uh, navigate through the the naming structure. We are in the process of converting that to an ontology in its own right, so that the Makeup of names can be uh, handled uh, in, in the same uh, system. Uh, maintaining an antler grammar alongside ontologies is proving to be too, too um, cumbersome. Yeah. Nexium, on the next slide, uh, I might have not said move forward on the slide. I just described slide 25, uh, which is, does a deep dive on how the grammar works with Sparkle queries against the device ontology. Um, so I'm, I'm dwelling on slide 25 a little bit here uh, to let you see that. Uh, the hydraulics device is, a, is in its na own namespace, but notice that it uh, has properties from the system namespace, has interface qualifier, uh, hydraulics interface qualifier. Our ontology modeling uses a number of ontology modeling patterns. Uh, the, the, the class instance mirror is one. Um, we, we have those documented in our ontology modeling guidance uh, for the NASA people that might be on this call, yeah. The ontologies are, as I say, got this wonderful name, Nexium, which we inherited from a previous um, project within NASA, but we had to make it stand for something different, so we swizzled it to mean NASA Exploration Initiatives Ontology Models, and uh, that's there you have the definition on slide um, 26. Numbers just gone over onto the left for some reason there. On slide 27 now, um, we, we don't talk about, in the same way that Rob talked about uh, the need for modular ontologies, we're doing that as well. Um, here you see the very top level of, uh, of a set of ontologies. We talk about N1, N2, N3, N4 ontologies. An N1 ontology has very general concepts you know, that anyone in NASA could understand. It kind of corresponds to level one, uh, is it spoken of in NASA, and level two, level three, etc., gets you down into finer levels of specificity. Um, the, uh, these are named graphs. They're not, the ontologies are actually the namespaces themselves, so an N2 system ontology is a named graph that throws concepts and new distinctions into the system namespace or the system ontology. Uh, I'm starting to make clear what I said earlier, I hope, about the difference between a name graph and a, an ontology. An ontology is a namespace. A name graph can 
uh, mention things across different namespaces. And the data set are the instances of an ontology, you know, the actual um, individuals instantiated against the types. Yeah. So we have ontologies on slide 27 for enterprise architecture, for modeling and simulation, for constellation elements, and uh, for C3I command control. As I move to slide 28, you, you're going to see, um, I hope, a little example of an enterprise architecture ontology. Uh, these slides are a little old because they carry um, the namespaces in a different way from where, what we are at now. And that uh, we, we, this is about a year or two years old, this slide, I think. Yeah? Um, the next slide, slide 29, is an indication of how – and it, it, this is a more recent slide because it, it has the namespaces without the N1s and N2s. Here you see that an information asset in the namespace of Constellation Data Architecture inherits from governed entity from the governance namespace. It inherits from information object from the, from, from the same namespace. It, it inherits from NASA identifiable concept, which is where we carry the IDs. So in, in, um, multiple inheritance is commonplace. An information asset is both a kind of governed entity and an information object. You can read that there for yourself. Um, this, another example I often give is how a software tool is both a tool and an application. So it inherits from um, application as well as, uh, as well as tool. Moving to slide 30, uh, here we get to dig into what an information object is. Uh, these are top-rate composer pictures uh, that look like UML diagrams, by the way. The, we, we adopt the same convention, but the, the heavy blue stuff is object property. The light blue stuff is, uh, is, is, is data type property. Um, sorry, no, no. The, 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 the colors haven't come. Up. The, the light green stuff. The light green stuff is um, data type property. You see that at the very bottom. ITAR restricted is a boolean, um, for example. The heavy blue. Those are object properties in the domain that we're in. CXDA namespace. The light blue are inherited or uh, properties that come from elsewhere. Um, so that's an example of what we're talking about. We, an information object has, um, has connections to who consumes it, which operational nodes, and the DODAF, DODAF sense of operational node, um, what information type it is, what's the status of it, who modifies, who produces, what is the discipline-based inquiry that it results from, and then we have file types and MIME types associated with it, etc., uh, etc. Et the... Slide 31, I'm, I'm moving to a completion at slide 40 for those that want to know how, how long this is going to be, but I, I hope to be finishing at slide 40. Uh, here's, here's where we get to look at information asset. Information asset has governance, what it supersedes. Uh, governance is, in fact, a concept that is held outside because it can be shared by a number of information assets. It's silly to say the same thing over and over again about an information asset if it's shared. So we have a governance class which collects that on behalf of a number of information assets. Um, and, and operational nodes play their part here. And it is, can, governance also needs to be connected to life cycle phase. So the life cycle ontology is in place here to uh, allow us to express what the milestones and key key gates are on the NASA life cycle. Uh, the next slide, slide 32, um, shows data exchanges. Um, it's, it's a slide that's about two years old, I think, this one. 
because um, it's carrying the N1-ness and N2-ness rather than the, um, the way things are now. So operational nodes can be organizational units or assigned role. Just as um, came up on the last presentation, we saw the need for reification. Assigned role is a reification of person uh, in the sense that we have a link here that is performed by, and then we have a assigned role of an organization. So we can say someone is the CEV avionics systems engineer, uh, avionics being a discipline or the role this discipline idea actually missing from this slide because it came in later, but that discipline also forms part of the assigned role idea. But it's not enough just to say someone is a system engineer or a manager or a technician. You have to place them in an organizational context and a, and a discipline context. And, and also in a, a system context, when, when I said CEV, I meant, that meant, means saying that the person is associated with... Um, crew exploration vehicle. Uh, data assets are shown in this picture. Data exchange packages make, are made up of those. They travel through operational nodes, and they have data exchange uh, characteristics associated with them. Um, the, the, both the exchange has that, and the exchange package has it. This is an extension to DODAF. It didn't make those distinctions um, quite as clear as that. Uh, next slide, slide 33, is a screen capture of um, some of the assets that show up, just to give you an idea. The DA Art is a data architecture artifact um, namespace where, where we see implementation plans, safety, reliability, and quality assurance. Um, hundreds and hundreds of uh, information types and in their various instances. Um, so this is showing, in fact, the logistics management information uh, example Again, it's a, a no. This is a yeah. This is a little old. This one as well, um, but um, I thought I'd use the older ones uh, just um, because they were at hand. Yeah. Slide 34 um, is saying how information asset um, adds this governance idea. We already covered that, um, and govern, governance is in its own domain. I think we already uh, covered that idea as well. So we move to slide 35, where I'm. Shifting from the data architecture world to the modeling and simulation world. When NASA builds vehicles, it simulates everything. It's extremely rigorous about how everything uh, that is going to go into space uh, has been proven in simulation models. Simulation models require different sub-teams to use tools. The tools have inputs and outputs. They uh, are being specified in XML um, and the XML schemas that have, have been generated from our ontologies. And the need to be able to uh, do this extends across NASA's boundaries. Uh, so we've had to provide these, um, this form of the ontologies across to other people. And uh, as we go to slide 36 now, we'll see what a tool is. A tool is made up of... Um, is thought of in this sense. It has uh, documentation associated. It's applicable to a particular discipline. It might have assumptions and constraints. It's used by uh, either assumed role or a community of practice. It has security levels, etc., etc. It's um, a class which um, might even have ITAR restriction on it as well. Tools can carry ITAR restriction, as you see in the bottom um, of the picture here on 36. 37. Uh, goes into how we've modeled a tool in terms of its input sets and output sets. Um, and input sets connect to parameters. They can, uh, parameters connect to um, units and data types. Um, so that's going on there. 
um, here I'm on slide 38. We, we're making um, some depiction of how parameter sets are, an input set, output set, and the internal variable set are all subtypes of parameter set. And we have input set is a subclass of parameter set is an example of how our, or sorry, RDF is um, able to handle these things, yeah? Uh, next slide, 39, gives you an instance level view of that. So this is the tool. It's for a thermal protection system. The FIAT tool here has uh, an input set that has many parameters. So we see here the uh, instance graph of that. Um, the, the heavy black lines indicating there's lots more to see in this picture. Um, so that's a little uh, example there of how um, the model gets instantiated. Um, on slide 40, uh, we're into the SBFI world, um, structure behavior function models. The system is made up of um, those dimensions, but the extra dimension of interface and systems, of course, decompose into subsystems. And the, the little graph you see below the uh, picture of the, the crew exploration module, uh, sorry, the crew exploration vehicle with its crew module and service module and its launch abort system, that whole thing there is depicted in that little graph, which you can't read, but uh, it's a picture like the last one, which shows the, uh, the, the connections between these entities. Uh, from these um, structural and functional hierarchies, we, we can generate our identifiers. On slide 41, uh, we have a depiction, again a very old one, <laughs> about two years old, I think, of the um, C3I command control um, modular ontologies. Uh, we build off NASA core, sorry, Dublin core at the bottom there, NASA core above that. As you move to the center of the picture, you see a technology ontology, you see an org ontology, spatial temporal things, uh, temporal to the right there, system ontology uh, to the, I guess it's uh, 11 o'clock from center, near center rather than far center. And mission ontology above that at uh, 1 o'clock uh, near center, N1C3I at the very top, um, importing all those ontologies. This is the key challenge for ontology work, is to decide on the boundaries. And you have to build a model of the models to do that. It was a topic that came up at my conference the other day. And uh, What does it mean to build a model of models? And it means to get into boundary criteria, into stakeholder analysis, into... Uh, competency questions. Slide 42 shows a picture of the the way maneuvers are modeled. Maneuvers, uh, there are several kinds of maneuvers, lunar orbit insertion, uh, coplanar maneuvers. Uh, um, maneuvers carry vehicle configurations. They require impulse-specific force or a burn. The burn requires parameters. People build a delta V budget from this from which they can estimate the amount of propellant. The amount of propellant uh, contributes to the mass of the vehicle. It, it, there's a trade-off between that and what you're doing on the mission, which requires, you know, modeling and simulation teams to, to go around uh, iterative cycles to figure out, you know, how long we stay on the moon, can we take enough stuff with us, how many maneuvers, when do we go, what, how, how to reduce the... Um, you know, when do we go is <laughs> related to uh, m making sure that you don't need too much fuel and all of that. Yeah? So this is modeled in uh, the mission ontology as well as the um, parameters and 
and the, the device ontologies and we can generate delta, what's called a delta V budget which can uh, be a spreadsheet for many people and that, that moves through the simulation uh, teams. Yeah? Slide 43 uh, gives you another look at the Orion module. Uh, we we, we uh, model the Orion module as in our 1.1, we're using uh, cardinality restrictions to say that the vehicle must have exactly one launch abort system. It must interface with some um, launch abort system that's said there and on the right. Uh, at 3 o'clock, you see that it has to have a service module. It has to have a spacecraft adapter and a crew module. And these um, are 1.1 um, 1.1 QCRs, as they're called. Yeah. On slide 44, we see the same thing for, um, well, actually, we see the instance level of a prototypical uh, Ares-1, the crew launch vehicle. It has um, the first stage and the upper stage, and you see me going up the hierarchy of, of assemblies here. So this is a, what's called a structural perspective. Uh, there's avionics or automation perspective, and there's a functional perspective as well on, on all these things. Slide 45 is... I said I had 40. I probably I have another two more to go. I think slide 45 is what we've been doing at Kennedy on launch, launch checkout. We modelled all of the hydraulics on the, the liquid hydrogen. Uh, so here you see a little picture of um, what that is: storage tank on the left, uh, external tank of the of the rocket on the right, various supply supply lines. This is shuttle um, picture on the right of that. You, you see the hierarchy of uh, de describing things at Kennedy in terms of um, ground support equipment. Um, this picture on the right starts to uh, identify some of the what are called function designators. 60,000 of those were put into um, a triple store, and we were able to relate a function designator to a um, place in the functional hierarchy. and check the commands that were possible on each of those valves and in the launch um, checkout sequence. The last slide that I have on that is this next one on 46, where we are um, using, um, actually we're using Sesame. Well, that, yeah, Sesame is in there on the right. That little cat is <laughs> Tomcat Sesame uh, with MySQL. Um, we, we have an information server there that then provisions a generated file, what's called an ecstasy file, an XML telemetry command exchange file from our ontologies, which goes to a particular piece of hardware to, uh, to give the metadata that's needed to, for the launch checkout things to happen on the ground. In conclusion, on slide 47, what we're finding is ontologies are working. Uh, we've learned our way through the refactoring business, through the naming business, through had to um, decide what's where. And we've also um, been able to generate a number of useful products from all these ontologies, not least the documentation that supports the Constellation program. So I have one minute, and I will end just by saying um, federated ways of working uh, where we're currently focused and the alignment of ontologies on some people's minds there may be the thought that we have to align things across NASA. Yeah, that is going on. The opportunity to connect to colleagues across NASA is happening in a very powerful way now. Yeah. So I end there. Okay, great. Ralph, thanks a lot. You know, Peter, it's kind of interesting here that 
We've managed to hit projects at all stages of the life cycle. Uh, one that's completed, but, you know, taking on a new life in a different form. One that's going into the next more expanded iteration. Another one that's really taking on a huge complex problem uh, from, from almost zero. So I think we've kind of blown the time budget, though, Peter. It looks that way. Uh, your call as the chair uh, on whether you want to maybe take one or two questions or maybe... Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think in order to... I'm sorry, you were going to offer me another option, maybe uh, have them do it by mail or something? Right, right. <laughs> the other option is to have people do it over the in, Ontolog Forum discussion mailing list. Yeah, I think uh, I think what I'd like to do is just, if I could, open it up, uh, shall we say, for seven minutes, and that would put us at the quarter hour, and just sort of cut it off there. Could we do that? Sure. Um, okay. All right. You watch the time, and let me go uh, go through the logistics again. If you want to uh, ask a question or make a remark, please press one one on your keypad now and when you get recognized either by your area code or by name if we can actually tell who you are then uh, unmute with a start three and test your voice uh, in the meantime I, mean, I can see one hand from uh, 301 now and then we have a couple of questions already typed out on the uh, on the chat board so uh, let let's find out. Uh, 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 maybe let's go go with the person on the uh, on the uh, who had his hands up first. Uh, three oh, person from three oh one. If you unmute yourself with a star three and try to speak up. Uh, Peter, I am oh, Ravi Sharma. I have the same okay. hand up. Uh, yes, yeah, same person. Yeah, same person. So maybe uh, uh, Ravi, uh, go I ahead. I have three questions. Uh, yeah, I have three questions typed out for Dr. Keller, Dr. Reskin, and Dr. Hodgson. Can I read them quickly? Uh, did, did that that would be Andy's decision. Uh, so sure, just uh, so long as we can, Ravi, so long as we can be cognizant of the time, why not? Um, similar to biogeochemistry, have you applied, Dr. Keller, these concepts to other planetary or astrobiology research areas, like biojovian, Europa, chemistry, or whatever, so that the reuse of uh, those concepts uh, that you are working on are possible. And as we get data from these simulated ontologies, we can start filling real validated, non-validated parts of the ontologies. So that was a question for Rob Raskin, right? No, Dr. Keller. Oh, for Rich. I'm sorry, Rich. Yes. Um, so... We haven't really focused on um, a planetary science. Uh, most of our work has been uh, directly in, in the area of uh, astrobiology research. Um, but within astrobiology and crossing over to sort of non-astrobiology applications, 
we we certainly have had a lot of reuse of the uh, the basic concepts uh, in our ontology. Okay. Next question is for Dr. Raskin. Uh, you find uh, so many categories of uh, uh, or types of ontologies, but have you done some work to see how we can group the relationships and their directionality and we can come up with at least the minimum triple or the kinds of relations you require to define ontologies and these are the common sets and these are the differing sets between the 30-odd that you mentioned. Uh, yes, that's exactly what has driven the design of the the redesign, the, the Suite 2.0. Uh, so I only showed some of the categories, some of the ontologies there, but that's exactly what it was. Uh, it has helped us to define what was what was the more general, what was the more specific, and what were the uh, what were the dependencies. So that's exactly what we we did. That was that was the driving force for our design. Okay, uh, thank you, Dr. Hardson. Tremendous, uh, tremendous work. A lot of which is uh, from. Uh, Similar to what uh, we never knew ontologies, but we did the Apollo project, and I received Apollo award from NASA, and I see a lot of reuse of same concepts for the new constellation project. The question is, how many of these concepts are uh, reusable in our now design? I wish we had designed them in that time frame, but now that we are going from, let's say, moon landing to Mars landing. How many naming and other concepts uh, of usage of spacecraft parts or actions and processes are reusable when we go transition from moon to Mars? Dr. Hudson? Ralph, are you still with us? Hello. Yeah. Uh, did Did you hear my question, Dr. Hudson? Oh. Hello. We might have lost him. Yeah. Uh, he's actually in San Diego uh, at a conference, so we might just have sort of broke out to speak. Uh, one more time, Ralph, are you around still? Well, I think, Peter, that uh, we're pretty close to the time budget now. Um, if there, you know, this is sort of members out of the NASA community that have ways of probably uh, getting their questions answered as well. Uh, but the direction, I think, Peter, is to have them post on the board. Uh, either that or, or show the hands uh, with the... One one. I don't have other hands up, but I actually I do have a a question or a solicitation to all the panelists, especially uh, Rob, uh, because your uh, planetary ontology is in fact a, a repository of, of uh, I I trust would be open work uh, that would be that, that benefit the entire community and. Uh, as some of you might know, Rob may or may not, uh, there is actually an ongoing effort uh, called the Ontology Summit 2008, which
which is different from the data ontology summit uh, you mentioned. Uh, ontology to the summit 2008 is a joint uh, effort between NIST, Ontolog, and uh, Stanford and in, uh, in Buffalo's Encore National Center for Ontological Research. And uh, this year's theme is on open ontology repositories. So I would uh, personally invite uh, all of you to maybe engage in that discourse in, uh, because there's, there's so much that, that uh, we could learn from you and, and I guess the exchange between this community and some of the, the work that, uh, and experience you have gained would, would help tremendously. Uh, I'll try to maybe uh, ping you offline as well in an email to provide you some uh, links to current uh, what's going on currently, if I may. That's all. And back to Andy. Yeah, well, um, you know, again, in the interest of time, I think it's, you know, it, it, it's always a toss-up as to whether or not to provide rich content. Uh, you know, when you have to trade off between rich content and uh, Q and A, uh, I hate I hate losing the Q and A, but I hope you're happy with uh, really the the uh, level and depth of uh, the material that was presented today by uh, by some a collection of some really smart NASA people. And uh, I want to thank each one of them, uh, Rob, Ralph, and, uh, of course, Rich, for taking the time out to prepare the materials and uh, out of their very busy days to join us and, uh, and share what's going on here. And, uh, Peter, I have nothing else except to thank you once again, sir. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank everybody. you all. This, this has been a really wonderful session.